Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. And today we're going to have a discussion about what it means to be local in a time when so much of our lives is virtual, including this podcast recording itself. So welcome to the show, Christopher Ali, who is an associate professor at the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia, as well as Christopher Mitchell, who's the director of the Community Broadband Initiative here at ILSR. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You, you missed the other important part, which is uh, Chris has the best pipeline of people who come out of college <laughs> ready to do important work on broadband. Uh, we've had, I've worked with, with many of his uh, former students and I mean, Kat Blake, Katie Jordan. And then also I didn't want to forget Anna Higgins because she works with Katie Jordan <laughs> and, and the work that they're doing in internet society is so important. I'm, I shouldn't have started naming names because I won't get through them all. But now Jericho is on our staff currently. Just a lot of really great people who I think were inspired to do this work, Chris. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And yeah, those are some amazing young people doing amazing work. And I love being able to follow their careers and the impact they are making specifically in this place of or space of broadband deployment and the importance of kind of evangelizing the importance of, of community networks, local networks, broadband networks more generally. Like I, I could not be more proud of them. Um, this is important. We desperately need more of these people. So. It's actually just um, a call so, for recruits. <laughs> what right. this podcast is. Exactly. If you're listening to these words and you have any interest in this, <laughs> please come work. All right. Chris, our guest, uh, you recently testified before the Senate on rural broadband policy generally. Is there anything... You want to share like a few highlights from what you you shared there? Anything that like surprised you or or that you you know you want to share with us about that? Yeah, I, I mean it, it was kind of a, a surreal experience. I did it in person because I wanted the whole pomp and ceremony of it, and and had some great you know one on ones, particularly with Senator Klobuchar about some awesome developments in Minnesota. I think one of the I guess two things that I I took away is that we are still having a debate over minimum broadband speeds. What the speeds that that Americans need in order to go through their daily lives. And, and we are still waffling on whether or not we should be using the speed set back in 2015, which is 25 megabits per second download, three megabits per second upload. And there was a different perspectives on whether or not that was an adequate speed. I, for one, do not believe that's anywhere close to an adequate speed, specifically when we're talking about households of more than one person, where the bandwidth, you know, it's not like this Zoom call is five megabits and another Zoom call is five megabits, and therefore you can have five Zoom calls using 25 megabits. That's not how broadband works. And it just kind of baffled me that we're still having having this conversation. I know there's there's a number of folks who would join me in saying that we'd prefer what's called a symmetric definition. So maybe like 100, 100, which would mean that everybody in a household, let's say four people, six people could be on a Zoom call, could be you know watching high definition Netflix, but could also be uploading data quickly, which is so very important for businesses, especially farmers. So I, I was surprised that that was, uh, maybe I shouldn't have been, but that that garnered so much attention in the testimony and the back and forth yesterday. It is frustrating to say the least. And 
one of the things I've found is that the people who are defending the lower standards almost always live in areas where they're never going to encounter them because uh, the vast majority of Americans live in areas where there are cable networks. And if you can afford their prices, which are going up next year because they go up every year, basically, if you can afford those prices, then you are getting speeds that are radically in excess of that standard. And, and I do find it frustrating to have people defending that when they themselves would not raise their family on that standard. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it is also, this is something I said yesterday uh, to the Senate, that oftentimes we think about 25.3 as a ceiling, right? As if something that's something providers need to meet, especially the larger providers like to think about that. But oftentimes 25.3 becomes this like theoretical speed where maybe when no one else is on the network and it's brand new copper wires for DSL networks and you're really close to the network node, then yeah, you can get 25.3. But the 25.3 is an advertised speed as well. I mean, so you qualify for some big money from the FCC, but really, you know, that 25.3 becomes 5.1 or 10.1 very quickly. And that's something that I think the proponents of keeping the speed low don't really think about. And I've called it the politics of good enough, right? We just need... It's, it's good enough for rural people. It, it's good enough because you have no choices and, you know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But, you know, good is the enemy of great here. And, and that's what I tried to tell the Senate yesterday. I've gone on a rant before on this show, so I won't do the long version of it, about how the Federal Communications Commission is really good at making sure that electronic devices do not emit harmful uh, radiation, either for health or for interfering with other devices. Uh, you know, a lot of things almost any device you buy has like a little thing that is inspected and, and approved by the FCC. Meanwhile, it, it almost could not be worse at mapping. And I think that came up yesterday. <laughs> I mean, the, the speed definition is bad, but the mapping, the, the, federal def, the Federal Communications Commission has no idea where there is broadband in the United States, with the exception of where cable networks are. And, and even then you might have massive reliability issues. Absolutely. And, and this is something that, you know, at, at, those of us in kind of the, the public interest community, have been, we've been talking about this for years, right? And the FCC was even ordered by Congress last year to improve its maps because, you know, for those of, for those on listening to this who don't who don't know what we're talking about, the FCC asks the providers to tell them about their broadband deployment twice a year, and they really let the providers call the shot. So it's measured by the census block level which means that so long as one building in a census block is served or can be served in 10 business days, that whole census block is considered served with broadband, which means we have grossly overestimated the number of Americans who are un and underconnected, uh, which is you know just absolutely egregious. So that was a, yeah, that was a major talking point yesterday. I've been really excited by what I've been reading about the Georgia map, though, and kind of these innovative partnerships at the more local or state level to map out communities or map out broadband deployment in, in communities. Georgia has partnered with a real estate data provider to go address by address to figure out who has broadband in the state. And they noticed some major discrepancies. I'm doing some work right now in the state of Virginia where I've asked uh, counties to self-report their broadband speeds. And in one county, there is a 90% difference between what the FCC says and what the county says. The FCC says they're 100% served. The county says they are 10% served. And quite frankly, I'm going to trust the county more than I'm going to trust the FCC on that point. 
Yes, but I think it is important to note something that is just really frustrating. The FCC, as you noted, ordered or the Congress ordered the FCC to improve their broadband maps. And the administration, the Trump administration, Ajit Pai, refused until the last day. And then they passed the rules so that they could structure it to make sure that even though they refused to collect the appropriate data, that they would make sure it was harder for Democrats to collect data in the way that the Democrats would like to under the Biden administration. This is why things don't work in this country. <laughs> Just nuts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, we could certainly talk about the need to do some major FCC reform so it doesn't flip-flop back and forth all the time. I'm a big fan of acting chair Rosenworcel. I'm excited to see what's coming out of this task force. And I appreciate that this is a difficult job because you're pushing against the ocean. And that ocean is big telco and big cable who do not want to share maps, who, who say it's proprietary or that they just don't have the data. They absolutely have the data. So, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle, but Congress has at least started to pay attention to the battle. Could either or, or both of you give just like a very brief snapshot of what's happening at the federal level in regards to broadband policy right now? I feel like we haven't really given that that overview. I haven't written books about it, so I'm going to defer to Chris. Yeah, so there has been, I mean, there's, you could almost divide it between everything that's happened before six months ago and everything that's happening in the next, in these six months, because it's been bananas. And I'm actually giving a, a presentation to Odessa, Texas tomorrow on this. So just off the top of my head, Congress has finally woken up to the idea that broadband is a necessity, which means you have to start putting some public money behind it because we have massive broadband deserts in this country. In the CARES Act, CARES Act didn't do great. Less than 1% of CARES Act went to broadband, although there was some wiggle room in how the states could use their CARES Act money. And a number of states, as the Shelby Coalition just released a great uh, post this week on how states used CARES Act in kind of this innovative way to get broadband out. We have the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which gave $7.1 billion to broadband, including a $3.2 billion broadband benefit package that's gonna make broadband more affordable for low-income families. It also gave a billion dollars to tribal broadband, if I'm not mistaken, to connectivity there, and to broadband provision amongst HBCUs, and also 300 million to broadband in rural areas. Now we've got the American Rescue Plan Act, which gave $7 billion this time for schools, hospitals, and libraries, and another $10 billion for state infrastructure projects that's supposed to be used towards broadband. Last but not least, the Accessible Affordable Internet for All Act was reintroduced in the House and in the Senate um, by James Clyburn and Amy Klobuchar, respectively. That's promising $94 billion for broadband, including $80 billion for broadband deployment. And the reason that number is so important is that that is the number the FCC itself gave in 2017 to get 100% of Americans, or close to it as possible, connected with fiber to the premises. So that number is, as the young people might say, clutch. And uh, the, the rest of it would be moved towards the important aspects of digital inclusion work, digital literacy work, and continuing the need to subsidize broadband for low-income families. So I am really excited about Congress finally putting big money where the talk is, where its mouth is. Because if we do it piecemeal, which is what we've done in the past 15 years, we will never close the digital divide. So we'll see about what happens with the Accessible Affordable Internet for All Act. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about things to come. So I want to I want to highlight you you had a really great rundown, particularly off the top of your head. Um, that was <laughs> <Thank> impressive. <you. laughs> 
the uh, amount of money flowing to local governments right now because of the American Rescue Plan is particularly unprecedented in terms of the, the lack of strings attached to it. You know, regarding the Affordable Accessible Internet Act with the $80 billion that you're talking about, let me just offer a counterpoint. Congress is taking it seriously. I want to give them credit to that. And it's the Democrats. Republicans are not supportive of it. I'm worried that the Democrats won't even be supportive of it in coming months. The first thing to note is that the $80 billion is, like you said, to get fiber to everyone. But the program is structured in a way that right now would put a lot of that money into networks that will be built in areas where there's already a cable provider. And I'm very curious to see if the Democrats stick to that or if the Democrats themselves water that down. And if they do that, then I don't know that they'll be able to spend the $80 billion. And I might, we might see a lot of press releases, but we might see a whole bunch of money that just can't be spent because there's no eligible areas left. As hard as that might be to think. And the real danger is not so much the rural areas. It's the population centers in rural regions that have crappy cable that, that might not work very well, that might look pretty good on paper in DC, but really isn't that effective. And even, even in more urban areas where you might have effective cable, but it's still very expensive. And so I'm kind of worried that even though Congress is treating this more seriously, that, that we might be getting our hopes up a little bit too high right now. That's a great point, Chris. And, and thank you. I, th- you know, I think I'm, I, I'm excited by big numbers. But I think this is also why tethering back to our earlier conversation, why we need to raise the speed definition of broadband, because suddenly a lot of these underserved, but pushing the limit of the definition, like, for instance, a lot of those county seats that you mentioned that have crappy cable service who are currently considered served. But if we raised that definition, they would now be unserved or underserved, which would which would hopefully, I agree, make them eligible for upgrades, because I think One of the problems about keeping the definition of broadband so low is that we've created a lot of underserved communities that are served on the map, right? So you go down to, you go down to, and this happens a lot with rural county seats where there's a, a cable provider that hasn't upgraded their network in decades. The speeds aren't much better than 25.3, if that, but they are considered served and therefore ineligible for any type of federal or state support. And, you know, we need to help these communities as well, because they're kind of stuck in like a broadband purgatory where you don't have good broadband, but you don't have no broadband. And so you're just ignored and 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 people are frustrated. Absolutely. Yeah, fully agree with that. Thank you for that that uh, rundown of the of the federal level stuff. That's I think really helpful context to have. Just to switch tracks a little bit, I'm I'm really curious to get to the the local half of this conversation, and I'd love to hear, Chris, what does it mean to you for something to be local or for someone to be local in this day and age when people might have kind of a more homes to to in quotes in virtual communities rather than their physical community where they live or or you know other aspects of that. So. That, that is a great question. And I actually wrote a whole book on this idea of what does it mean to be local in the digital age? I think it depends so much on what we're talking about. I mean, obviously, when we're talking about voting, we still vote locally. And I would actually argue when we talk about broadband, broadband is local. Broadband is fundamentally local. And the best broadband service is local service. When we start talking about things like communities of interest, or I've been particularly interested in like linguistic communities, it becomes a lot more subjective, right? I am local in the space I am most comfortable. 
I, I, I teach a course at the University of Virginia called What Does It Mean to Be Local in the Digital Age? And I start the course asking my students just to write down a reflection. What does it mean to be local? And most of them will point to a particular geographic neighborhood or community. Where I am local there. And then by the end of the semester, we talk about, well, where do you feel local? So you might feel local at a Starbucks, but it doesn't have to be any Starbucks or it can be any Starbucks. You just feel local in that environment or at a library, for instance, or playing World of Warcraft, right? So I think we're starting to maybe untether that definition in theory between local and places. But on the flip side, I, I think when we talk about policy, particularly when we're talking about broadband policy, that geographic component becomes absolutely crucial because it, it, it becomes about local accountability. You know, if you've got one of the big providers, I don't know if I should name big providers, but if you, let's say you've got Comcast or you've got CenturyLink there, I just did it. You don't know the owner of that network. You don't know who to com complain to if it goes down. You're calling a customer service line. If you have a local cooperative or a municipal broadband provider, you know, you're more than likely to see the person at the grocery store. They might be your neighbor. You probably got their phone number. And when I talk to local broadband providers, that's what they tell me. Like when someone's network goes down, they get phone calls to their house. So there's this element of local accountability. But I also think when we talk about local broadband networks, there's also this idea of return on investment can't be measured by the quarter, as in quarterly shareholder returns. It's measured in, in, in uh, communities and people connected. It's measured in the long-term decades sometimes. It's a very different way of thinking about broadband deployment, much less as a commodity, much more as a service and a utility. And that's why you'll see me and read me say over and over again, the best broadband is local broadband. It's nice. But I mean, in talking to someone, a U.S. rep staff, he told me, you know, we're never going to actually get broadband, like high quality fiber optics across the entire prairie, though. And I don't know, there's a corner of southwestern Minnesota that is uh, pretty remote. And we can't really expect that everyone there is going to have fiber optics, can we? Well, you're, you're, you're talking about our favorite piece of Minnesota, my favorite piece of Minnesota, Rock County, Minnesota. Rock County, Minnesota, population roughly 10,000 has 99.93% pass-through broadband to the home. Did you meet the 17 families? Like, there's like, what, 17 families that probably yeah. don't have access? Like, it is, <laughs> is, it is an that? amazing success story of a public-private partnership between the state of Minnesota, which is, in my mind, the leader, the statewide leader in kind of broadband thinking. You, have an, you had an amazingly proactive county administrator and you had a board of supervisors that supported that county administrator. And then you have a cooperative, a telephone cooperative, Alliance Communication. You bring all these things together. You've got a great recipe for 99.93% broadband to the home. Fiber, um, you said. Fiber, sorry, fiber to yeah. the home, yeah. It is, it is, it is incredible. And, and I absolutely agree that we can't, you've seen one broadband network, you've seen one broadband network, but there are lessons to be learned. There's lessons to be learned at the state level, which means empowering local communities. There's lessons to be learned at the local level, meaning you need a local digital champion and you need to understand what you want out of your network. In this case, in Rock County, they were offered fixed wireless networks, but they wanted fiber and they were going to hold out for a fiber dance partner. And then you've got this local cooperative. Now it's local to in South Dakota, but um, they drove there. The county administrator drove there, had a meeting, and and basically on a handshake, maybe not that easy a contract, but said they would invest $6 million in Rock County. I mean, local, 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 
all the way down the pipeline. And in one year they did this, including in a Minnesota winter. Yes. And I've met some of the, the folks from Alliance. They're great. And there's a lot of the upper Midwest. We have a lot of really great local cooperatives. We've got some great independent family companies that, that do similar things. Yeah. There's a lot of those partnerships. It seems like, again, to reinforce that local, what needs to happen is you need to have local folks that are organizing around it. It might be members of the, the county staff, uh, might be independent business owners. It might just be residents who are themselves making sure this is a priority and having those conversations to make sure that if, if grant money becomes available, they can quickly put a project together. Absolutely. And that's what we saw there. I mean, you, I think Everyone would agree that in a community broadband toolkit, you know, you have to have digital champions who are going to keep pushing for this and be ready to to act when there is an opportunity to act. And and you know, in Minnesota, they they have quite a great that border to border broadband program really does open up a lot of opportunities for communities like Rock County, which might be passed by communities in terms of broadband deployment because it's difficult to find what they told me was a dance partner. But if you've got a state like Minnesota that's willing to put some money behind it, suddenly you'd be able to attract a provider. And, and that's something that we're struggling with here in Virginia, actually. I think the state has finally realized that they need to put some a little bit more serious money behind county projects so that these counties can attract a provider. In Virginia, it is difficult for municipal broadband projects, not impossible, it's not prohibited, but certainly inhibited. And the state definitely prefers public-private partnerships. Yes, and I think it's just worth noting there's been a conversation and people have run for office in terms of getting the state out of the way. And the legislature has decided after conferring with lobbyists that it should not get further out of the way at the current moment. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's definitely it's definitely frustrating here and here in Virginia. I, I I work with a number of counties. I speak with a number of counties doing this county project right now, and what I'm hearing from a lot of counties is we're excited. We have a plan. We can't find a partner, and we don't have enough money and enough political sway to do it on our own. And so they're stuck, and it's not fair because they've done everything right, and they still can't find a provider. We need to figure out ways policy mechanisms at the state level, at the federal level, to make it easier for these counties to get connected. This conversation also makes me think about how these physical and virtual spaces really overlap. I mean, in terms of like community organizing, where you might have local businesses or residents in a community neighborhood Facebook group that are talking about what their problems in regard to broadband are and how to organize around it. So they can influence each other, right? Same with like local media. Right, right. But of course, it does depend on having broadband in the first place to organize online. Mm -hmm. I I, this summer I did a study with my 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 colleague Nicholas Matthews at the University of Minnesota, and we studied Surrey County, Virginia, which is one of the least connected counties in the in the state. It is also what's called a news desert. It does not have a local news outlet. So we it was a broadband desert on top of a news desert, and we were trying to figure out like how do you get information. And particularly, how do you get local information? And we talked to a lot of people who were spending hundreds of dollars a month because they needed a cell phone, a mobile hotspot. They were trying to do whatever they could with satellite internet, which we all know is garbage. But a lot of times, you know, they were still depending on word of mouth conversations. And, and the, the Dollar General store became this amazing news ecosystem in and of itself. But hearing firsthand the frustrations of, of people who don't have access to what we, so many of us take for granted, it definitely 
makes you think that something something better needs to happen. We'll continue with our conversation in just a minute, but first we're going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to Building Local Power. If you're enjoying our conversation, I hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support our work. With your help, we can continue advocating for the kinds of local solutions that Christopher has been discussing with us today. We sincerely appreciate anything you can contribute. Thanks so much. Now let's go back to my conversation with Christopher Ali and Christopher Mitchell. Could you talk about the importance of this for people in those communities who might feel disconnected with the neighbors that they have or like outcasts in this community and and how this access how broadband access can help them yeah i mean that's that's a great point and i think particularly when we when we think about the way that lgbtq youth use the internet as a space actually to be local to feel comfortable to be themselves we often think about broadband access in terms of like the big things like economic development and education and healthcare, right? Civic life, you know, these kind of big democratic and, and, and capitalist ideals, but like, it's also an opportunity to, to live your life or, or to, to make inquiries about yourself. And we can't discount that when we have conversations about the importance of broadband, because you're absolutely right. You may not feel at home in just because you live somewhere doesn't make it home. Right. And, and I think particularly of, again, LGBTQ youth who, who have used the internet in such innovative ways to find a community where they feel supported and loved. Yeah. So, Chris, you have a book coming out in a few months at the end of the summer called Farm Fresh Broadband. Could you tell us a little bit about that and the, and the process of researching and, and writing it? Yeah, the book uh, will be out early September, that first week of September, from MIT Press. The full title is Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity. It's based on five years of research, including, you know, reading a lot of policy documents, doing a lot of interviews. Chris, I know I I interviewed you for the book. Um, I also went on what I called the rural broadband road trip. I drove throughout the Midwest with my hound dog, Tuna, trying to humanize broadband policy trying to really make the connection between what's going on at the federal level at the FCC and USDA and what's actually being lived on the ground. So it is, it is an, an, an analysis trying to answer an easy question to ask, a very hard question to answer, which is we spend, we being, the, let's say the United States federal government spends in various capacities between six and $10 billion a year on broadband deployment, not affordability issues, just deployment, getting wires in the ground or strung up in the air. The digital divide to solve the rural-urban digital divide, that rural-urban digital divide, as we just talked about, is not solved. In fact, by a lot of measurements, it's getting bigger because going back to an earlier conversation, you've got these communities stuck with like crappy DSL and you've got a lot more urban wealthy areas moving to fiber, just not even worrying about this because they have a good updated cable system. So how is it that we spend all this money and where is it going? And what solutions, what are communities doing to connect themselves in, in kind of the wake of what I call policy failure? So it's a story, I like to say it's a story of both success and failure, failure of policy, success of communities. Spoiler alert, for way too long, all of this money just went to the 10 largest providers and for very little in terms of build out. That's me being a little cynical. 
I would say that that's absolutely correct. Although some money has gone to local, the monopolies, the local independents, they're not technically monopolies, but I just say, they often feel left out of these conversations. And so there has been money that's been wisely spent, not all of it on the independents, but the mass majority of the money that you're talking about does go to those big 10. Yeah, right. And I, you know, I look at the difference between, if we get really wonky here, called the Connect America Fund phase two, which was 1.5 billion a year that was just given away to the 10 largest companies. And then you had a little, you had a smaller fund called the Alternative Connect America model, which I'm kind of a big fan of. And that's, that was also a billion dollars a year, but it went to, it had to be split between 173 small providers. And Chris, I think these are the providers that you're thinking about. They had much higher standards to meet and you know what? A lot of them met it. So a lot of them were using that billion dollars a year or do use it to put fiber in the ground or kind of a fiber field fixed wireless network. Whereas the 10 big companies were using it just to upgrade their DSL networks. Again, I'm generalizing here, but it, it does yes. local providers. <laughs> Sorry. You're generalizing because those big companies didn't actually upgrade their, their DSL networks. You're right. They didn't even. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, they connected a lot of suburbs and exurbs though, and, and still continue to abandon or leave, leave abandoned rural communities. The local providers, including just, you know, small regional mom and pop providers, electric cooperatives, telephone cooperatives, they end up being the big heroes of the book. Again, this idea that local broadband is the best broadband. And yeah, so it, you know, it, it, the book has introduced me to an amazing number of people and, and passionate, deeply passionate digital champions and, and just everyday, everyday folks wanting broadband or how they're using broadband. So again, it's, it's a story of success and failure. One I hope that will resonate with a lot of people and it will be out in September. I would love a picture of, of tuna on that road trip if you, to add to our post. Yeah. So just saying, yeah. just throwing yeah, that absolutely. out there. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Did you prearrange all, or did you just like stop and get gas and talk to folks about broadband um, serendipitously? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. When I uh, I had a few stops mapped out along the way, but other than that, I just chatted with people. And this is where having a dog as your research assistant becomes amazing because people want to pet your dog when you go for walks, and then you say, "Yeah, totally, you can pet my dog." And while they're you know while Tuna's working his magic, I say, "Hey, can you tell me about your internet connection? Like I'm doing this research, I'm just trying to." I'm just trying to figure things out. Uh, one of my favorite stories was that I was at a grocery store in Missouri. And it turns out that at grocery stores in Missouri, you can drink beer while grocery shopping. So I, I was waiting in line at the grocery store bar. And I, I I started chatting to this young couple, certainly younger than me. And they were asking what I was doing. And it's like, I'm doing this, doing this, writing this book and doing some, this research. And they're like, oh, you have to talk to our friend who just bought a farm and didn't realize that it didn't have broadband and then paid for a fiber connection. So these kind of like serendipitous conversations just really ended up, again, putting such a human face on a very wonky and some and sometimes very technological issue, and and I really wanted I really want to humanize broadband policy because I think that's where you know you can really start to make some changes. Well, I'm glad that Tuna didn't eat your book. Um, you did not. <laughs> speaking of your book, I feel like you have not used the requisite number of answering questions saying, as I write in my book, <laughs> to just remind people constantly that you have a book that they should pre-order at a local independent bookstore. I want to I want to come back to where we started a little bit with your your testimony and we didn't touch on overbuilding yet this this idea that we should be very wary that in general the biggest problem we face in broadband is is that we might have too much competition and it might be unfair for 
for the government to give one entity a subsidy to build in an area where it has previously given other people some subsidies. And so I'm curious if you want to if you want to address that and preface it by saying, as you discuss in your book. As I discuss in my book, I, I am not a fan of the idea. And again, I, 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 as, I, as I write in my book, you know, this idea of, like, again, the politics of good enough that one provider is good enough, even if that provider received government money. Because as we just talked about, sometimes that provider did a really bad job using government money. So it might have connected a community, let's say, to 10-1, which was the standard that you know, these large providers needed to, to, needed to meet. So why shouldn't we fund another provider who's going to actually deliver meaningful connections to those communities? Why shouldn't we? And because we also know that competition drives down prices and drives up innovation, right? And we saw this, we see this in a number of instances when, uh, when a municipality decides to, to, to fund its own network. We, we see a lot of shady politicking as well in terms of lobbying, but we have seen meaningful competition, even in small communities. So this idea that one provider is good enough when we exist in this capitalist system that should endorse competition, I don't know. I, I think competition can't be a bad thing. And so this idea that overbuilding becomes this boogeyman that we should just always avoid really just privileges incumbents who can continue to do a bad job. Now, I gr- grant you, some incumbents are doing a great job, but for those who aren't doing a good job, why not have a competitor? You know, and I, I also think about things like there's this program, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, which says if you got money from a, from the state or you got money from USDA, you can't dip into this money because we don't want, again, using that over overbuilding. We want to do the most unserved areas. You know, I, I don't know. I just feel that a lot of this is done at the behest of big incumbents who have the ear of, of lawmakers and regulators. Yes, it's I think it's classic penny wise pound foolish where yeah. they are we should probably update the pennywise dollar foolish i guess i don't know <laughs> yeah. um but but i honestly don't know what th- those words mean so oh it's like it's like <laughs> the idea of like an idiom i should know well, it's the idea that like you go around saving pennies while you're throwing dollars away like you're so focused you don't really understand where the value is where the bottlenecks are and in this case it's to say that that we end up with a system in which we overpay for poor outcomes and and those are outcomes in which then residents and businesses have to overpay for rather than just getting it right and and this is an it's it's odd situation in which I feel like there's a lot of people, Chris, who their work is to try and convince the American public to change their mind on things. Like what you and I are doing, it's like 85% popular. Right? That's, this is, that's exactly it. Like how, how can you be against this? And, and, and that's and, something, it's weird because we still have to figure out how to be strategic because most yeah. of the elected officials don't want to do what 85% of their constituents want them to do. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It is yeah, it, it is amazing and it is frustrating and it is vexing, but we'll just keep fighting the good fight. I, I just wanted to to end this conversation with, Chris, do you have any reading recommendations? I also accept watching recommendations and it doesn't have to be related to this topic and it could be your book if you want to. I mean, I'm not going to be that vain, although people can buy it either my first book or my new book because it's available for pre-order. But one of the books I found I came back to a lot for, for researching my book is, is, a, is a book by my, my, my friend Roberto Gallardo called Responsive Countryside. It's a very similar book to mine, but maybe a much more community toolkit driven, a lot more solutions at the community level, whereas mine looks at federal policy. He's also a, he's a great writer. 
Another one. Yeah, Sorry, I mean, let me interrupt for a second. He's also in the Big Ten, which is a big deal. Like we don't want any of that, any of that focus from the the ACC schools. He's at Purdue, which is uh, just are, inherently superior to other schools. Are we talking about sports now? Yes, we are. <laughs> I am. Oh, no uh, one else is. <laughs> so the the sports, I don't. I I I got I got nothing. I unless we talk about figure skating, Winnipeg hockey, or curling, I'm really at a loss for. So- let me say, you you have a deep history of figure skating. I got into skating a little bit last winter and really this winter. Man, skating is the coolest thing ever. So that can be a sports segment. Yeah, skating yeah, is great. Yeah, there you go. Skating is, skating is great. Um, what else can I recommend? I'm going to look around my room just very quickly to see what I'm, what I'm reading and what I'm really into. Hmm. Jason Farman's book, Delayed Response, which is about the history of being bored and the history of waiting for things, is outstanding jason's at the university of maryland i don't know where they rank on the on the sporting um, big 10 big there you go wow yeah. i read a lot of big 10 don't i <laughs> i i you know what i like reading i mean i like reading informative books I, I read for my job but like when someone is a good writer as an academic it is a magical magical thing and and um jason farman is a fantastic writer so his book is called delayed response those are great recommendations Well, thanks for joining us today, Christopher. This has been a great conversation. Christopher and Christopher, great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ILSR.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Delfiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.